Turn to the book of Hebrews. The New Testament, toward the end, the book of Hebrews. This morning we're going to begin a new sermon series, preached through the book of Hebrews. Some of you have studied this with me in years past, in a Bible study in my home, on Sunday evening, it's been a lot of years ago, and that doesn't include many of you. So now we're going to begin, all of us together, to work through this wonderful and very critical book of the New Testament. Before we begin, I want to tell you uh, three reasons why I've chosen uh, to study this book of Hebrews. The first is we need to learn what to do with the Old Testament. Ignorance of the Old Testament is one of the most glaring weaknesses uh, of Christians of our day. We know some of the ancient Bible stories, but most of us don't quite know what to do with the rest of it. Well, that's what the book of Hebrews tells us, how a Christian ought to understand the Old Testament in light of Jesus' coming. Second reason is that we need to learn perseverance. As being a Christian becomes less and less acceptable, we're going to be more and more tempted to abandon our faith, as some already have. That's what was happening to the recipients of this uh, book. It was apparently written to a group of Jewish believers, um, devout Jews who had come to accept Jesus as the Messiah, Um, But when it began to cost them to believe in Jesus, when they faced opposition, even persecution, uh, because they had not grown strong in the faith, but it had been easy to kind of coast along with everyone else, uh, they were now tempted to turn away and to go back to the old familiar uh, Jewish uh, traditions. This book presents encouragement and warning to those tempted to just give up. And we, too, need to hear that message. The third reason is we need to know Jesus. In recent years, Jesus has repeatedly been redefined to fit our culture. For a while there, he was the rebel with a cause, and then he was the spiritual guru, and then he's been the master therapist, and sometimes the American hero. But in the book of Hebrews, we learn about Jesus through the unfolding of God's word. Here we get to know Jesus as the goal and the focus of of all that God has said and done through the ages. And that's my hope for you and for myself as we study this book together, that we might see Jesus like we've never seen him before, that we might get to know him better and dare to trust him more, that we might come to love him like he's loved us. One more little word of introduction before we get into it. It's customary at the beginning of a new study to present some facts about who wrote it and to whom and when and where, etc. Well, I can basically give you all of those things in three words. We don't know. We don't know who wrote this book of Hebrews. Some say Paul did, but that's only one of many, many opinions. The list of suggested authors includes Paul and Barnabas and Luke and Clement of Rome and Silvanus and Apollos and Silas and Aquila or Priscilla. We just don't know. Similarly, we're not told to whom this is written, except for what is implied in the verses themselves, as we just said. A a group of Hebrew believers uh, attempted to turn away, but that group may have lived in Rome or Jerusalem or Alexandria or anywhere else we just don't know. Neither do we know when the book was written, except for a hint that we have. The text sometimes seems to speak as if the temple sacrifices were still being offered, and we know that the temple was destroyed and the sacrifices ceased in 70 AD when the Romans overran Jerusalem. 
Suffice it to say that God has given us, book, uh, given us this book as some, somewhat as a bolt out of heaven, with no accompanying explanation, but with enough power and illumination to be self-explanatory. So what matters is not that we spend a lot of time talking about it, but that we dive in and listen to what it has to say, and dive in to pursue knowing Christ in all his power and glory. This morning we look at the first three verses, a classic, classic text, Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Let me read it. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets in many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his glorious word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, and there will end. Two great truths I want us to see here, and they're pretty simple, but we just need to reflect on them a while. The first is this, God has spoken. God has spoken. We live in an age of uh, communication. No longer can anyone in any profession survive without giving attention to this matter of communication. In our lifetime, we focus massive amounts of money and manpower to develop communication skills and communication technology and to put them in the hands of everyone. But folks, God was in the communication business long before we ever thought about it. God is a revealing God, a God who has, from the beginning, made himself known, who has always communicated to his creatures who he is, and what is on his mind. I love the way Thomas Long put it in his commentary. He says, God is pictured not as a silent and distant force impassively regulating the universe, but as a talker, as one who has been speaking, arguing, pleading, wooing, commanding, telling stories, conversing, and generally spinning words across the lines between heaven and earth since the beginning of time. In a word, God has spoken. Now here we're told that God has spoken in two distinct ways. First of all, he's spoken many times in the past through the prophets. The Old Testament is a record of this word coming from God through the prophets. And there were many of them. Moses and Samuel and Elijah and Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, And all the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and many more throughout the whole Old Testament. And God has spoken many times. The Old Testament that is in view here is written over a period of over a thousand years by many different prophets in many different situations, using many different communication techniques. And God has spoken in various ways by direct and audible voice in dreams and visions, by miraculous signs and wonders, through strange dramatic acts which he had his prophets uh, uh, live out, and by using the prophets' personal lives to illustrate the truth, as he did with Hosea, for example, and his unfaithful wife. The Old Testament scriptures are the result of these many prophets speaking in these many ways in so many times. But notice that the weight of it all is nothing less than God has spoken. The scriptures are nothing less than God's word. 
That's what the Apostle Paul writes to young Timothy when he says, All Scripture is God-breathed. Yes, it was written by the prophets and languages and many times, many places, but the end result is it is God-breathed. We may not understand it all, but but never allow yourself to demote the Bible to something less than what God says it is. It is the word of God that he has spoken. Secondly, more recently, God has spoken through his son. This is the record we have in the New Testament. God didn't just send messengers having dreams, telling stories, and writing sermons, as the prophets did. God himself came in human flesh. That's how the Apostle John described Jesus coming in his gospel. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Indeed, that's how Jesus explained himself. When Philip asked him to show, him, show them the Father, Jesus said, Don't you know me, Philip? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So in the New Testament, we find now the historical accounts of the life of Jesus, theological reflections on the meaning of his life and his death and his resurrection, and instructions passed on through Jesus' disciples and the prophets of the New Testament concerning how we are to live in light of his coming. Folks, in these days, uh, if people believe God exists at all, they probably perceive him to be distant and detached and mute. But as Francis Schaeffer Schaeffer wrote a generation ago, he is there. And he is not silent. God has spoken in the past in many ways through the prophets and in these last days through his son. So the question is, are we paying attention? Are the ears of our hearts open to hear what he says? Are we even willing to open his word and read the record of what he has spoken? But the point of this text is not just to say that God spoke. But the point of that text is to focus specifically on God speaking through his son, which brings us to our second point. Jesus is God's last and perfect word. Jesus is God's last and perfect word. In verse 1, there's a crucial phrase concerning God speaking in his son. It said, God has spoken in these last days. Now that's a phrase that has two possible meanings, and both of them describe what has happened. Taken one way, this phrase can mean simply, at last or finally, God has spoken. In other words, God, who has spoken many times in many ways over the years, has now finally spoken in the coming of his Son. That is a decisive word, for it completes God's revelation. This is kind of the mentality of, uh, uh, of iron workers who are building the superstructure of a skyscraper. And, and when they get to the very top and they put the last big iron beam on there, they raise a flag on it. We have, this is the last beam. This is the last step, and now it's completed. So the work of Jesus is the last span in God's great plan to redeem his sinful creation. That's one way it can be taken, and that's true. 
But then, taken another way, this phrase, in the last days, means not simply that Jesus is the last word in a long chain of words that God has spoken, but that he is the great fulfillment of the whole thing. That's what the Apostle Paul meant when he said in another place, in the fullness of time, of times, God sent his Son. In other words, Jesus is the culmination. He's the fulfillment. He's the embodiment of everything that God has spoken through the ages. All the words of promise which God spoke to Abraham and to Moses and to David and Isaiah and all the others were spoken in anticipation of this final word. And now they all find their fulfillment in this perfect word who became flesh. Thomas Long, who I quoted a moment ago, summarizes his helpful discussion on this with these words. What God has spoken in the Son is both continuous and discontinuous with the Old Testament narrative of divine disclosure. It's both continuous and discontinuous. It carries on and it makes a radical new newness. In other words, a time at the same time Jesus conforms to and completes the work of the Old Testament prophets, and he also in, in, in introduces and inaugurates a radically new day of salvation, which renders the old covenant now fulfilled and obsolete. Jesus is the last and perfect word. Now, the superiority of Jesus over every other word God has spoken is seen in several ways in our text. Three things I want to show you. First of all, Jesus is a superior word because he is both the beginning and the end. Verse 1 says he is the heir of all things. That's thinking about the end and who inherits everything. Jesus is the heir of all things. He's the heir of the promises of land and people made to Abraham. He's the heir of the promises of a kingdom and a throne made to David. He's the heir of the promises of a new temple made to Ezekiel and others. He's the heir of the promises of a savior to come made by Isaiah. In other words, as the apostle Paul says, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken to us, by us, to the glory of God. Jesus is the yes. He's the answer. He's the fulfillment of all the promises of God. But this Jesus is not just the heir. He's also the maker of all things. He was there at the beginning, the agent of creation. All things were made by him. Those who are chosen were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. He is the one who has sustained all things through his powerful word from the beginning. And now he, he is the beginning of a new creation as he makes all things new. You see, Jesus is not just another link in God's plan. Jesus is God's plan. He's the Alpha, the Omega. He's the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. Jesus is God's last and perfect word. Secondly, Jesus is the superior word because he is both the light and the face of God. Verse 3 tells us the sun is the radiance of God's glory. Radiance is the light that streams from the source of light. 
But you can't separate the radiance of light from the light that radiates. So the sun is the radiance of the Father's glory. The great church father Athanasius put it this way, who does not see that the brightness cannot be separated from the light, but by, is by nature proper to it and coexistent with it? Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory. But then verse 3 also says, the Son is the exact representation of God's being. Interesting Greek word is used here, a word that means the impression made by a die or seal, so that a coin is the exact representation, precise in every detail, of the die that cast it. So Jesus is the exact representation, precise in every detail, of the being of God, of the very essence of the Father. Taken together, these two pictures give us the most beautiful and perfect description of the Son. He is clearly equal and co-eternal with the Father. He is the radiance that cannot be separated from the light. But at the same time, the Son is not the Father, he's the Son. Though he is the exact representation of the Father's essence. You see, it's, it's more than just a passing thing to say, Jesus is God's last and perfect word. Thirdly, we see Jesus as the superior word because he is both the Savior and the Lord. According to, John, uh, to, to verse 3, Jesus provided purification for our sins by his death on the cross. As John the Baptist had predicted, he proved to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So all those sacrifices which God's word required, all those purification rituals, all those rules for ceremonial cleansing, all those Passovers, all those days of atonement, all those other holy days, everything in the law that pointed to man's need for purification was fulfilled in Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice for sin. But then verse 3 goes on to say that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. His sacrifice of himself was not the end of him. God raised him from the dead and exalted him to the throne so that the one who was the Lamb of God is also the high priest of God. The one who died to be the Savior is also the one who is the Lord, the King. Jesus is the last and perfect Word of God. He's not, Jesus is not just the last in the in, 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 in a long history of sacrifices, and he's the last one to be offered. He's not just the most recent word from God in a long string of words that's gone on for centuries. No, he is the perfect word of God, the culmination of all of it, the, the fulfillment of all of it. People think about the situation that these Hebrews faced who received this uh, message. They were Jews. We know that just from reading the book. They were Jews who grew up in the Jewish traditions, grew up on the law and the prophets, grew up reverencing God's holy word in a way that makes us look flippant, probably. But those were not just traditions of men that they learned. 
they learned the word of God, the Torah, which revealed and, and which God revealed and pre- preserved for his people. And now they've embraced Jesus as the Messiah. But that was beginning to cost them dearly. Not just before the unbelieving world, but before their fellow Jews, their family, their friends, who were still walking according to the prescriptions of the law. So imagine how their friends uh, challenged them. They probably said things like, how can you depart from the temple which God prescribed? Here you are meeting in homes and stuff. You need to be in the temple doing what what we do in the temple. How how can you think you're smarter than Moses? How can you not bring the sacrifices? Have you become a heathen of some kind? You need to repent. You need to come back to the scripture. You need to return to the true and ancient faith. Your Jesus is dead and gone. It was a hoax. It was a mistake. Look, even the Roman officials recognize that, uh, that, that this is a cult, and that's why they persecute you. Come, come uh, and, jo- and join with us again, because even the Roman officials recognize we are a legitimate religion, and, and there's safety here. Come home, brother. Come home to the temple. Come home to the law. Come home to the prophets. Come back to God's word. So should they just forget about Jesus? Return to their Jewish customs? Is it all really just the same thing? You see, if it were, this book would never have been written. But it's not all the same. Jesus has come and has brought radical newness. Yes, God spoke through the prophets, but Jesus is God's last and perfect word. And there's no turning back from him. Two truths. God has spoken through the prophets in many ways and many times. But in these last days, God has spoken through his son. Jesus is the last and perfect word. That's why Jesus said, Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous Men longed to see what you see, but did not see it. To hear what you hear, but did not hear it. That's why Peter writes, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing. They spoke of things that you have now been told by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. But in these days, he has spoken in his son. Folks, we don't face exactly the situation that those Jewish believers faced. We don't face the same pressures, difficult questions. But... Our situation is not entirely like, unlike them either. As I study this passage, I see two distinct dangers about which we need to be warned. Two dangers as we try to understand this relationship between the revelation of God that came through the prophets and the res- revelation of God that has come in his son. First, there's the temptation to separate Jesus from the Bible. To say, Jesus is alive, he's given me his spirit, I don't need my Bible anymore. 
Well, folks, it's in the Bible that you get to know Jesus. You don't know any Jesus apart from the Bible. A Jesus separated from his word becomes so subjective that it becomes whatever we want him to be. He becomes our new age spirit guide, which is only really an extension of ourselves and our own imagination. Separated from God's objective revelation, preserved in his written word, Jesus eventually ceases to be the Jesus who actually shows us the Father. Instead, he gets molded and redone to fit our cultural preferences. And so the church rightly battles for the Bible. One of the most crucial battles of our day, you cannot separate Jesus from the scriptures. That's one danger. There's also another danger among us who revere God's word. And that's the temptation to reduce this revelation that has come in Jesus the Son down to some dusty volumes of ancient manuscripts, a a perfect set of rules to be kept, a static, predictable uh, system of doctrine. But those old wineskins cannot hold this new wine. Jesus himself said so. The living Son has come. He has fulfilled every jot and tittle of the scriptures. He has shown that it spoke to him, spoke of him, and pointed to him, and predicted him, and gloried in him. So apart from him, the Son, the Lord Jesus, all the written word is meaningless. And the Son has not just left us alone, left us to fall back on the ancient rule-keeping ways. He has come to dwell in us, in the person of his own Holy Spirit. You see, this Jesus is alive and well. He meets his people in worship. He dines with us around the table. He walks with us. He guides us. We fellowship with him. He loves us. We love him back. He calls us to live in relationship to him, not just to practice a religion. Now, that can sound a bit unsettling. And in that sense, we're in the same position these Jewish believers were. This new way of the Son is not nice and safe and predictable as it is just living by a rule book. Indeed, everything we know about Jesus from his word tells us he does not necessarily do what we expect him to do. And he calls us for a level of commitment that shocks us. But like them, there's no going back. Jesus is all there is. All the wind before him is now obsolete. It only pointed to him. To know God, we must know Jesus. So to return to some static rule book religion, no matter how true it might have been in the past, would be to depart from the living Lord. Such is the awesome supremacy of Jesus Christ, God's last and final word. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we easily fall into traps. We usually get into some kind of subjective religion that wants to lay aside your word, or, or Lord, we get into kind of a rule-keeping mentality that misses the newness, the discontinuity, uh, the, the, the new creation that has begun in Christ. Lord, we need wisdom that we would walk according to what you've spoken. So I pray that as we work through this book together that you would teach us that you would hone our understanding and focus our minds 
till we think like you think, until we see our Savior like, like you have designed us to see him. Oh, Lord, help us. As we reflect, reflect on the things we've thought about this morning, guide our thinking and grow us in your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.